Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun, a very special week at That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs, but I'm not really your host this week. This week, the show is hosted by Mike Kelsey. But the music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Torrin Wells. Make sure you grab a copy of his album, Citizen of Heaven. So here's the thing. After Pastor Mike Kelsey from McLean Bible Church in D.C. was on our show a couple of weeks ago after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, you guys have loved his conversation, who he is. Me too. I'm so grateful to be friends with him. And a couple of weeks ago, I just thought, you know what? Maybe Mike just needs to run the show for a little bit. (laughs) And so this week, we don't have two episodes. We have three, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And all three of them, you will only hear me in the intro and the outro at the back part of the podcast and in the middle to tell you about our partners. The rest of the show on the interviews and the conversations are all hosted by Mike Kelsey. And I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, Mike has planned these shows, laid out these shows, made all the plans and set up the week for us. And I am so grateful. So we are starting the week with an amazing conversation with Jamar Tisby, the author of The Color of Compromise. And this week starts with a conversation between Mike and Jamar about why history matters and why what's going on today really matters. So here is our host for the week, Mike Kelsey and Jamar Tisby. All right, well, uh, my name is Mike Kelsey, and I'm uh, a local pastor in the D.C. area at a church called McLean Bible Church, and it is good to be back on the Annie F. Downs uh, podcast. I have a a guy with me who is becoming a friend, but has certainly been um, a guy that I've learned so much from, and his name is uh, Jamar Tisby. So, Jamar Tisby, welcome to the Annie F. Downs That Sounds Fun podcast. Man, you know it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you thinking of me, Doc. Absolutely, man. So, uh, so I've kind of t- told you um, kind of what we're talking about this whole week. Annie has kind of given me the mic against her better judgment, and I'm sure <laughs> against the wisdom of her team. Uh, she's giving me the microphone just to lead in some conversations around a lot of what we're wrestling through in this cultural moment, issues of race and, and justice. Uh, and so we'll dive into, into some of that. But first, uh, some of the folks that are listening may not be familiar with you. So where'd you, where'd you grow up, man? I grew up in the Midwest in the Chicagoland area. So if folks uh, tuned into uh, that that documentary, The Last Dance, uh, about Jordan and the and the and the Bulls, that was right up my alley, man. I was reliving those days. I grew up uh, in in the '90s watching the Six Pete uh, in in the Chicagoland area, and there was just nothing like it. So that's kind of where wow. I grew up. How I grew up was um, in a black family. We when I was growing up, we we weren't Christian, but we weren't hostile to Christianity. And I became a, a Christian in high school through the ministry of a, of a white evangelical youth group, actually. And so, so these issues of race and Christianity and race and religion have kind of always been at the forefront of my mind because I lived it. I was experiencing it mm. in so many different ways. So that's kind of where I came from. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, we are already talking about controversial issues like race and justice. And you just start off the top introducing another controversial issue which is Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. So just for the record, just for the record, just so we can go ahead and put this behind us. He's the GOAT. Who He's is the, the GOAT? goat? Yeah, All right. That's it. That's it. Look. It's done. Y'all heard it here. You know what I'm saying? Y'all heard it here. Just take it for just what it's worth. Watch that. We done. Uh, you know. We can just shut it down. We can move on. There's so much in society that we need to address. We got to stop getting hung up on things that are obviously and evidently Thank true. You. So, Thank you. Appreciate you for that, bro. All right. So you lead an organization called The Witness. Uh, tell us about The Witness. Man. The Witness, a black Christian collective, has a storied past, but I'll, I'll catch you up. Yeah. We are a faith-based multimedia company. You can check us out at thewitnessbcc.com, thewitnessbcc.com. And what we do is approach issues of race, religion, and culture from a black Christian perspective. We always say we're not Mm -hmm. the voice of black Christians, we're the microphone. And so what we try to do is Mm -hmm. amplify various black Christians. Although if you look at our contributors, most of our articles come from submissions and we've got 
the the array of racial and ethnic backgrounds represented. So we do that uh, website blog, but we also have a podcast called Pass the Mic. Mm-hmm. That's our flagship podcast. Yeah. We actually have a podcast suite, a suite of different podcasts from Ali Henney's Combing the Roots to uh, Aaron James Theology Q&A to Once Upon a Time in Wakanda. So if you want to go deeper on Black Panther, the the movie and um, the the comic book from Marvel, you can listen to, to that series. So we do a bunch of different things, man. But what we're really trying to do is minister to and serve Black Christians, particularly those who found themselves in the past or present in predominantly white Christian spaces. Um, so we kind of mm. are able to speak that language. And uh, we've we've also been a, a place where white Christians have come to sort of sit and listen and learn. And, and we welcome folks to do that as long as they're okay with it being a Black-centered space, which is what we try hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, on that note, you talk about kind of the storied history and past of The Witness and 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 so people who may not be familiar with the witness because I've been following y'all's uh, work for a long time. At one point, the organization had a different name, <laughs> and I think even the evolution of the organization and the change of that name is pretty relevant to kind of the issues that we're going to be talking about. So, just briefly, man, I I, I don't even I didn't even tell you I was going to ask you this, but just briefly, like what went into changing the name to what it is now? So I think from a 30,000 foot view, folks need to understand that so often white Christian spaces are not simply hostile to racial and ethnic minorities, they're toxic. They do Mm. active damage in a lot of cases. And that's what we and so many uh, folks experience. So we used to be called, we, we, we started in the fall of 2011. And when we first launched, we were called the Reformed African-American Network. And for folks who aren't familiar, Reformed theology is a system of theology that gets its name from the Protestant Reformation uh, that, that, that officially, you know, sort of launched in the 16th century. And then the, the theological um, genealogy is European and white, socioculturally speaking, has mm-hmm. some good things to say, but is coming from a very narrowly narrow sociocultural location. And so I was in those circles. I was going to a seminary that was reformed on my way to getting an MDiv. I was part of a denomination that ascribed to reformed teachings. And so what we were trying to do at that moment was carve out a space within these predominantly white fellowships for black people and black concerns from a reformed and Christian perspective. Well, um, fast forward, I mean, we always had sort of headwinds with that, right? Like the the old trope was uh, race is a political issue. It's a, it's a civil issue and Christians shouldn't be talking about it sort of in a church context. That was some of the initial resistance that we found. But then you fast forward to 2014, 2015, and a young black man named Mike Brown gets killed in, in a city I'd never heard of, Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, Black Lives Matter, which had been around for a couple of years as a phrase, finally becomes a topic of national conversation. And so uh, this is this is playing out on a national stage, but also within the church. And so you have black Christians like me and others saying black lives matter. And then you have other white Christians saying all lives matter and blue lives matter and totally missing Mm -hmm. the pain and the even the theology behind a phrase like Black Lives Matter and demonstrating for all the world to see just how backwards they had it when it came to racial justice. So those are some of the push factors that caused us to change the name. But at the same time, there were pull factors, uh, which is that we folks like myself who hadn't necessarily grown up in the black church were discovering and others were rediscovering the richness of the black church tradition. So it's not only it's not only that that white Christians were making their spaces really uninhabitable uh, by black people if you wanted to be healthy. It was also that we were we, we were we were hearing the call of the historic black church and uh, the the messages were resonating with us, the messages of liberation, the messages of joy, the messages of sounding the call for justice were were resonating with us. And so we changed our name, I guess this is 2017 to uh, the witness, a black Christian collective to better reflect 
the way we wanted to center Black Christians, the way we wanted to honor the historic Black church tradition, and the way we wanted to say to certain white Christians, look, if this is how you want to structure your space, you can have it because it's not working for us. See you later. Um, if you want to change, if you want to learn, if you want to listen, there's always an open door for you, but we're not going to mistake assimilation for unity, which is what we were being required to do. So that that history of even the name, the witness, a Black Christian collective, I think is really important as we talk about some of the racial dynamics that we're wrestling with in our culture. Uh, and then also for those listening that are Christians that are a part of a local church or a part of a Christian institution like a school or other nonprofit organization, the kind of tensions that and dynamics that we experience in those spaces uh, as well. Now, I... When I was in college, man, I was an undergrad and I was never, man, I've never been like an academic. I mean, by God's grace, I have some degrees now. But like when I was an undergrad, I went to the University of Maryland, College Park, go Terps. <laughs> and uh, man, I honestly, this is real talk, bro. I just picked communications because that seemed like not just the easiest, but the most likely way I was going to graduate okay. <laughs> uh, from, from college. Word. Uh, I think some people probably pick their major that way, but I'm guessing you did not just randomly pick like this work that you're mm -hmm. doing. And so how did this work around race and anti-racism become such a core part uh, of the of the work and really the ministry that you do? And we'll, we'll, you've written a book about it. We're going to get to your book in a second, but just broadly speaking, because even before you wrote the color of compromise, like you had kind of given yourself to this work around race and anti-racism. How was that shaped in you? Was it like a light bulb moment or a specific event or was it just different things over time? So I think what a lot of people need to understand is that black people do this work as a matter of survival. So on one level is very personal to me. I can remember, you know, some of my earliest interactions with law enforcement were being followed by police at the arcade. Like we're in the arcade. Mm -hmm. My group of friends is, is black and brown. And for some reason, you know, our skin color automatically made us suspicious. But I always think back, like, what were we going to do in an arcade? Like, what were we going to we're going to break open the machines for quarters. I just don't even know. Like, it's just weird. It's just weird. But, you know, uh, y'all might try to cheat on that, on that Zelda, exactly. you know what I mean? You know, put in the cheat code. I don't know. It's just, just like, <laughs> of all the places you would think if people are suspicious, there's like not really much you can do. But anyway, so, so it's always been part of my lived experience. And then in college, it really became, you know, college is usually a time of, of sort of racial awakening for a lot of people, particularly black people. For me, it was like what people might call microaggressions. So like at that point, I shaved my head bald, you know, again, like Mike, right? Mm. It's not the only reason I did it, but it was a good look. <laughs> and 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 these white boys would would come up on me and just like rub my head, totally unexpected, without permission. And I knew at the time I didn't like it, but I couldn't name why. But it was this very patronizing move, you know, that you have access to my body, even if it's just something like a head rub. But I didn't give you permission for that. Right. And then um, I was a hyper minority. Right. Like we were less than five percent at the uh, University of Notre Dame where I went to undergrad. And then most of that um, was was athletes, which I wasn't. Uh, 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 an athlete at a D1 school. So I wasn't plugged into that community. So I felt very isolated. I was the only black person on my floor at my dorm, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was always there in that, in that lived experience. But, it, but when it came to Christianity, I was frequently a minority. Like I said, I came to faith in this white evangelical context. And so um, I wasn't really conscious of it too much in high school. But once I got to college and right after college, uh, and I started learning about reformed theology. There was no black people to be found, right? Like so it, any church yeah. you go to, any of the books you read, it's, it's white, white, white. Um, I think things started to come to a head after college. I joined Teach for America, and that's how I got down to the deep south. I moved to um, the the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, mm. where I still live today, mm -hmm. and I taught in a uh, public charter school down here that served uh, our population was 99% black, um, vast majority, 85, 90% qualified for free and reduced lunch, which is a federal measure of poverty. 
a USA Today article in 2019 named the county where I live the fourth poorest county in the country. And so this is where issues of justice really started to to confront me, right? Like, so mm. if you think of any kind of issue that goes along with uh, concentrated and generational poverty from um, homelessness to lack of access to health care, to food deserts, to incarceration, all of that was walking into my classroom on two feet every day. And so mm. I started to ask yeah. of my faith, what does my faith have to do with justice? What does my faith have to say to this community? What? How can the gospel be good news to these folks that I'm around now? And in this majority white tradition, I found it didn't have very much to say. Um, mm. So so that's all background leading up to, I would say, um, in terms of me getting involved in history, really the catalyst was the Black Lives Matter movement and asking questions like, how do you get a community like Ferguson, which is majority black, being policed by a majority white police force? And what mm, accounts for the yeah. antagonism and the tension between these groups? And as I, like many people, were trying to, to do, figure out, you know, what was going on, to me, I found that historians often had the most helpful things to say. And so they could mm. talk about things like redlining and restrictive covenants. They could talk about the origins of the police force and the link to slave patrols and all of this stuff. And to me, it seemed like the secret knowledge that historians had, that they were able to unlock the realities of the present by studying the past. And so I wanted that. I took a class at Jackson State University, historically black college in Jackson, Mississippi, and man, it just blew my mind. Like all this history that mm -hmm. I didn't know, even as a black man, even history as recent as the civil rights movement, I was just appalled mm -hmm. and astounded. And so, and so, yeah, that's what sort of launched me to, to where I am today, trying to get a PhD, good Lord willing, in history at the University mm -hmm. of Mississippi. Better you than me, bro. Get that PhD, man. Get that PhD, and 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 that's really that's helpful. And part of what I want to do this week in these conversations, right? That we that we kind of let people lean in and listen to is, I think we all need to, uh, and I really do mean all of us. I think we need to to develop our muscles and 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 practice the skill set of really listening. But I think in our culture. Uh, I, I think like you're illustrating, Jamar, unfortunately, even when we think about our history books and the history that we get in our kind of educational system, our listening tends to, to, to be kind of one-sided. There's a whole bunch of history that we just don't get in the normal course of education. And we actually had some questions come in about that, which we'll, uh, which we'll get to. But so, so all of, so you in your own personal life, and then as you're kind of growing up in your academic and your church and, and professional life, you kind of were interacting with and beginning to process more deeply and more personally these issues of race and justice and asking these questions like you mentioned uh, in Ferguson. And so here we are. You mentioned Mike Brown. You mentioned Ferguson. Here we are now. And we are facing uh, some of the exact same situations that were the initial kind of impetus behind some of the work that you're right. doing so we've had Ahmaud Arbery right who was who was murdered and, and many people by now kind of know those stories and even some of the details that are continuing to unfold we had Breonna Taylor mm -hmm. and people kind of are, are are learning more and more about what happened with Breonna Taylor you had which was probably the icebreaker moment for so many people listening. You had George mm -hmm. Floyd who was killed with an officer's knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And the world, because of a cell phone video, you know, saw his life literally being taken from him. And, uh, and so many different names just recently, right? Rashard mm -hmm. Brooks. And by the time this recording is published, there may be another name that we add to this list. Uh, let me ask you this. Does this moment that we're in right now, especially since George Floyd was killed, does this moment feel different for, uh, to you? Because a lot of people have said this just this one just feels different. Yeah. Does this feel different to it you? It does feel different. It feels different on a lot of levels. Number one, it's sustained. And so when these protests and uprisings first took place, I would not have at all been surprised if it had taken place over a weekend and then by the next week, the news cycle had moved on. Unfortunately, that's mm. just what often happens with these things is we have yeah. a, 
uh, a moment of outrage and then it's business as usual. But um, as we record this, it's, I believe, like week three of protests and uprising. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and number two, it's not just located in Minneapolis where George Floyd's murder took place. It's not just located in major cities. It's it's not just located in one state. It's all across the countries, uh, all across the country in cities big and small. And it's international. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got folks marching in the streets on different continents in, in protest mm -hmm. uh, for black lives. And so that feels different. Um, another way it feels different is that in the touch point I have, the sort of historical reference point I have is recent history, 2015, kind of at, at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, when folks like you and me were just like looking at white Christian leaders like, you going to say something? You Are you, yeah. you going to make a statement about black life mattering in the midst of all yeah. these videos and these murders and all this stuff? So, so, so we were like, you know, calling them out to speak out. But now it seems like there's been a lot more proactiveness, not just on the part of white Christian leaders, but on the part of companies and organizations. If you'd have told me six months ago that NASCAR <laughs> was going to yeah, ban the NASCAR, Confederate flag, <laughs> NASCAR. I, there's no way I would have believed you, right? Like, yeah. so, so you can't tell me that's not different. The question is, mm. is this moment a movement and what is going to happen next? Is there going to be a sustained kind of push for racial justice, particularly around the specific issue of policing? But, but, but here's what I know is, is that mm. as I look at my focus historically is race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century, uh, this moment will pass, you know, where this it, yeah. people are marching in the streets, where the news cycles on it, that's going to pass. It just always does. And when it passes, there are going to be those masses of people who also revert back to the status quo. But what I also know is there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be yeah. a group of people who are genuinely catalyzed in this season who never give up the fight for racial justice and who make the fight against racism a lifelong battle. And, and here's the thing that we need to realize is that change has never come from a majority of folks getting on board with change. It has come mm. with a minority of people who are truly dedicated yeah. to it and who move the needle and, and push society to a different place. And so what I'm looking for is who 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 is this going to stick with, knowing full well yeah. it's not going to be the majority. Here's the other thing I'm looking for. You didn't ask all this, but I'm going to say it while I'm on the while it's on my mind. Hey, listen, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I'm looking for is, is white lash in response to this. Mm. Because if you look historically, there's always a, 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 an attempt to reassert white supremacy after big movements for racial justice. So you can look at the Civil War as a prime example. And in the wake of the Civil War, this period of Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877, most historians would say. But then right after that comes this really chilling period called Redemption which I call it chilling because in the mm. Christian frame, redemption is a good news word. Redemption means Christ coming to, to redeem humanity from our own rebellion against God. But in, in, in U.S. history, uh, this, this movement of redemption meant taking back the country for the white man. And, and it was the period where the Jim Crow era really uh, became entrenched. And it's this period of, of lynching and racial terror and, and all of these things like the, the erroneous concept mm -hmm. of separate but equal. Right. So there's that white there's that white backlash there or white lash. I think uh, Van Jones uh, or, or called it in, in the uh, uh, civil rights era. There's this uh, white lash against black civil rights on a, a cultural and a political level. So you have a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1950s and 60s in response to uh, black people mobilizing for their civil rights. And then you also have a political backlash with the, you know, Nixon uh, calling to to the so-called silent majority and this idea of law mm -hmm. and order and all of these things that that begin to um, re-entrench white supremacy after Brown v. Board, after the 64 Civil Rights Act, et cetera. And so what I'm looking for now is a year from now, uh, I'm wondering 
not even really a year from now, in November, you know, what's going to be happening in yeah. this presidential election? Or should the world survive to next year? What, what is it going to look like in terms of uh, are, are there going is there going to be a massive pushback within uh, white Christian circles or, or white circles in general against this big push for racial justice right now. So those are just the, the some of the lessons from history and, and some of the things to look out for. I'm not making any predictions, but those are the kinds of things yeah. that that I'm attuned to right now. Yeah. So all right, let me let me let me let me articulate what some people are feeling right now. Jamar, you just said, if I counted correctly, you just said the phrase white supremacy like two times, maybe three, definitely two. <laughs> Some people hear that and are thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. How did we get to white supremacy, though? Like, how in the world? Like, <laughs> like, all right, I get what you're talking about when we talk about, you just mentioned the Ku Klux Klan. Yep, a definite example of white supremacy. I understand that. But how in the world did we get to white supremacy when we're talking about all these other issues? So just, you're a historian how would you kind of define what white supremacy is and and why do people who are scrolling through twitter and looking on instagram like why do they keep seeing this phrase thrown around white supremacy is the ideology that whatever is deemed white is superior or central in society white supremacy okay. is why when it, it shows up subtly, but it's it's why when I was in seminary, all theology was just theology until it was black theology or Latin American mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the norm or the standard was European or white theology, which didn't even need the adjective because it was just assumed yeah. it was white, right? It, it, it shows up in churches when it's a predominantly white congregation and if you look in the pastor's study on his or her bookshelf, it's all these white authors. Mm -hmm. And the subtle message there is our authority is white Christians and what they have to say. White supremacy is the overarching ideology of which racism is a particular manifestation. Uh, but uh, as others have said, and I would recommend the book um, White Awake by Daniel Hill, who's a white pastor up in Chicago. Um, okay. But but he he uses the, the notion of white supremacy as the narrative of racial difference, the narrative mm -hmm. of racial difference. And, and the way we can understand white supremacy is this. What I say in the book, uh, The Color of Compromise, is that racism never goes away. It just adapts. Yeah. And the reason why racism adapts or never goes away is, is, is because the ideology of white supremacy never goes away. The story that we tell ourselves about race has remained consistent for, for hundreds of years, even though the manifestations of racism from race-based chattel slavery to Jim Crow segregation to a modern day racialized society, even though that changes over time, what is consistent is this narrative of racial difference or white supremacy? So there's a lot more to say about that, but those are, you know, that's some that's one way I would describe it. Okay, so I mean, and I think that'll be helpful for people who wonder how how do we make that leap? And some people may still be wondering how we made that leap, but but it's important, I think, at least if I'm hearing you correctly, to to say white supremacy is not just these extremist. Uh, acts of terrorism that you see in the Ku Klux Klan uh, or in, you know, uh, slave owners. But white supremacy is this ide um, ideology that actually makes itself into, makes its way into all kinds of thought patterns and policies and institutions. Uh, and it really has, um, it, it has effects uh, today. So you mentioned your book, Color Compromise, which is now a number one bestseller on Amazon. First of all, congrats. <laughs> congrats on that. Uh, and I just have to ask, real talk, how does it feel to be a best-selling author? Like, do you wake up in the morning? Do you feel different? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, does your wife treat you different because you are a, a number one bestseller on, on Amazon? How does that feel, bro? <laughs> 
it's 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 odd because the reason why the book is experiencing sort of a renaissance in attention is because uh, George Floyd was murdered, right? And Breonna yeah. Taylor was murdered, and we have all of these negative racist incidents that remind us not only is this a problem, but this is an urgent issue. And we need to inform ourselves about it in order to do something productive. So the circumstances obviously are tragic, but I am grateful that people are, are looking to the book as a resource and finding it helpful. And I just I, I don't think we can overestimate the importance of studying history in order to understand where we are in the present, particularly with our racial situation. So that's how I interpret it, is that people realize mm-hmm. You know, if I want to understand the present, I better go back and understand the past as well. Yeah. So, okay. So, you have another book that is coming out in January. What's the name of that yeah. book that's coming out? So, this is probably the first time I've talked about it on a podcast, like breaking news. Well, here you go. Um, so, it's called How to Fight Racism Courageous Christianity mm-hmm. and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Yeah. If you read The Color of Compromise, I dedicate the last chapter to to practical ways that we can fight racism. And essentially, uh, this next book, How to Fight Racism, is a book-length expansion on that chapter. Um, but you need not have yeah. read The Color of Compromise to access How to Fight Racism because it, it stands on its own. And, and, and the reason I wrote it is because whenever I talk or write about racial justice. And I've done this from coast to coast, colleges, churches, Mm -hmm. uh, conferences. The most frequent question I get is, what do we do? So it is a practical question. It is a how-to question. It It is a question that presumes there is a problem. Racism is a problem. I agree with you. And I want to be part of the solution, but I'm not quite sure how to do it. And this book, hopefully, is one way to respond to that question. It's my response to that question. Hey, friends, just interrupting this conversation with Mike and Jamar to tell you about our partner's ritual We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies, and that's why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Ritual left out all the mysterious additives, the synthetic fillers, and the shady extras that can be found in some traditional vitamins, and they're committed to showing you their nutrients, where it came from, and why they chose it. This is called traceability, and it matters so much. Taking a vitamin is really important every day. I love Ritual. Y'all have heard me talk about it. I love that it smells like mint. Two vitamins a day just kind of keep me on the path to having a good immune system, to being really healthy, to kind of keeping my body in a healthy state as we continue through the summer. Ritual is designed to be gentle on an empty stomach, which I think is important because a lot of times, you know, you take them in the morning before you've had breakfast and their delayed release, no nausea designed capsule is made to be gentle on an empty stomach. And they use high quality ingredients, which really matters to me. In fact, 40% of women cannot properly utilize the synthetic form of folate, which can be found in many multivitamins. And that's why Ritual uses folate in an absorbable form to help cover women's needs. Try it out. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash that sounds fun and start your ritual today and you'll get 10% off your first three months. That's the deal for our friends. And I love it. So that's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash that sounds fun. And now back to the show. I know from hearing you talk and you and I have talked about this, that in your forthcoming book, uh, some of the framework that you lay out for how we fight racism is an acronym uh, that you use. And it's it's ARC, A-R-C, Awareness, Relationships and Commitment. And you kind of say in the book that one of the first steps for people who are asking, what do I do? One of the first steps is awareness, like making yourself aware of uh, lots of different things that will help you to be more informed and help you move and act in more informed uh, ways. And one of the ways to increase awareness is to learn history. Um, So, so important. And that's the gift that you've given us in the color of compromise. And so why would you say history is so important uh, as we think about even just current recent 
events and, and how we respond. And, and part of the reason why I asked that question is because a lot of times this is one of the biggest differences. Um, and I think Emerson and Smith write about this in yep. uh, Divided by Faith, the book Divided by Faith. One of the biggest differences that we see surface in when these situations happen. So uh, when a an unarmed black man or woman is killed by a white police officer or any type of racially charged situation, one of the most persistent tensions that come up is the re- is the fact that for many of us, especially as African Americans, when we see one of these incidents, we don't see it as an isolated incident. When we see Ahmaud Arbery and we watch that video of of two white men getting out of a pickup truck, uh, man, that for us almost automatically brings up a catalog of images and just historical realities. And so some people, our white brothers and sisters, look and say, well, wait, hold up. Why? That's just, that's an isolated incident that we need to deal with on its own merits and wait for the facts about that one situation. Why in the world are you bringing up slavery when we're just talking about one person who was killed by one police officer? So why is history important as we think about and as we respond to current events? Well, you contextualized it very well, which... The importance of history is to show us that what we're seeing now is not an isolated event and it doesn't emerge de novo from one person's actions or the current context. But in fact, what historians always say is everything has a history. And so why are instances of police brutality so explosive in 2020? It's because we remember back in years ago with Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell and even Rodney King and further back, the 1965 mm-hmm. Watts uprisings were a result of police brutality. So so we're able to, um, as black people and, and um, people in marginalized groups, see the historic patterns. But what historians do is go to the primary resources, which I think are so important. Oftentimes, our understandings of the past are filtered through other people who have filtered it through other people. And what I appreciate mm-hmm. so much about studying history is that you go straight to the source. And so um, in the book, The Color of Compromise, you know, I, I did a lot of historical research and some in- events and incidents just stick out to you. One of them is that in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of uh, white Christian men, passed a law that said Baptism would not emancipate a person of African, Native, or mixed race descent. And that sticks Mm. out to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, the timing of it. This predates the political entity known as the United States. It's 100 years, more than 100 years before the Declaration of Independence or the ratification of the Constitution. And so there was never a time when these issues weren't pertinent. And then number two, Hmm. it it stands out because of the the intersection of issues. You have race, religion, and politics all wrapped up in this one event. So you have this political body making a law about religion that's based on race. And so while Hmm. you can Hmm. distinguish between race, religion, and politics, you can never completely separate them. They're intertwined Mm -hmm. historically and in the present day. So that's one of the ways that that history, I think, helps us understand um, who we are, where we are, and how we got to this moment. And there's just so much Mm -hmm. history that we don't know. I mentioned at the top of the show uh, taking a grad class in history, and I read books on the civil rights movement, and there were just so many people and so many movements and so many actions and so many events that I had no idea about. The book... If folks are really dedicated, this the book that really catalyzed me was was called Local People by a guy named John Dittmer, mm. historian, and it's about the mm. Mississippi freedom struggle. Uh, so it's it's you know most books by academic historians are very specific. So this is state specific, and it is a catalog of white supremacy and black resistance to it. It's often a very depressing story, mm. but it's just so it is brimming with historical facts and detail 
that are not easy to read, but so informative. And so all that to say is that as much as we think we know about history, if all we've done is rely on what we got in school and what we may see, you know, in an occasional article or on the news, then we are woefully uh, ignorant of of our history, especially when it comes to race. Yeah, man, I think race is so incredibly important as we think about this. And I find, uh, and you mentioned it even for yourself, right? So many of us are uneducated or uh, miseducated, right? right. right? About, uh, about American history. And that actually has real consequences, not just for the ways that we personally think about and engage the world and the people around us and the issues that we face, but it, it really has consequences uh, for our policies, you know, and, and who those policies uh, affect. And so I want to start to kind of walk through, man, uh, we, we got you on the mic as a historian. And, and I want I want this to be helpful because we, we've gotten so many questions around issues of history and around issues related to like the history of race in particular and the history of racism. And so you hear this phrase thrown around a lot. Uh, race is a social construct. And so people who are listening who uh, have read a book on race or maybe took a class on race when you were in college or a sociology class or something like that when you were in high school, whatever, uh, you may have heard that phrase before. But but for people who may not be as familiar, race is a social construct. What does that mean and why is that important to understand? I hope people by now intuitively know or have learned that race is not rooted in biology or the Bible. So. Race, or what we think of as black and white in these categories that we're talking about, is not something that is natural to our biology. The only thing that's different when it comes to race is the amount of melanin in our skin. And that is a negligible mm. difference um, in, in all mm -hmm. kinds of ways. Uh, so so a, a social hierarchy based on skin color is not rooted in in biology or or anything like that uh and and it's also not rooted in in theology as a matter of fact the in the christian frame genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 talk about human beings made in the image and likeness of god which gives inherent dignity and worth to all people whether you're christian or you practice another religion or no religion at all simply being a human being means that you are in the image and likeness of God. And so theology would teach us uh, the equality of all persons. And so, and, and uh, contrary to what many white theologians did historically, uh, which was to say that slavery or the subjugation of people of color and black people specifically was rooted in God's divine order, uh, the great thrust of the Bible in any reasonable interpretation would say that's completely wrong and that um, God hmm. enjoys diversity, celebrates diversity, but mm -hmm. um, differences don't mean a greater or lesser in, in God's economy. So, so that's what I mean. Uh, it's not rooted in, in the Bible or biology, but it is a social construct, which is to say that societies, and in particular the society that... Um, has characterized the United States, made up these categories uh, to advance a certain agenda, in this case, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And race as a category was partially rooted in ideology and, and, and anti-Black racism that's always there. Nobody needs help or lessons in hating or disliking other people. That is something that is common throughout mm -hmm. places and, and history. But to codify it in a system of race that we know today was a result of deliberate choices throughout um, different sectors mm -hmm. of society and politics and economics and in, in, uh, entertainment, you name it. So to say it's a social construct mm -hmm. means that, that it is uh, created in time and space and context. But it is not to say that racism is, race isn't real. Uh, race has real effects, yeah. <laughs> as we can see with the yeah. murder of, of black people, unarmed black people at the hands of police officers as just one manifestation. So even though it is constructed, um, it, it still has very tangible effects. Yeah. So the racial categories that we know today, 
have social kind of effects and realities, right? But they're not actual biological or even biblical realities in that sense. Uh, but some people then would hear that and say, all right, exactly. We made this stuff up. We're not any different. Uh, that's why I'm colorblind. <laughs> And I, I know, and I understand what some people mean when they say that. I think they mean I don't want to treat people according to their race or according to the color of their skin, which I do think sometimes we underestimate just how much race and racism infects even our own hearts and, and our own biases. But I understand when people say I'm colorblind, I think what they mean is I don't think it's right and I, and I try not to you know, uh, treat some people well because of the color of their skin and treat other people poorly because of, uh, because of the color of their skin. But is that a helpful uh, response to what you just explained? Race is a social construct. We made it up. So the solution is for us to just become colorblind. How I'm sure you've heard yeah. people share that same sentiment. Is that is that the way we should respond to it? And if not, why why is that problematic? So one thing I think we need to understand is that um, the diversity that we see in um, our appearance and our ethnicities and our cultures is not an accident or a mistake on God's part. And the fact that I'm in this brown skin, it, it, it matters to God. And it matters to me being made in the image and likeness of God. That is part of me being in the image and likeness of God is, is all this beautiful dizzying array of differences that we have in, mm. um, in humanity. And so if you don't see color, then there's an aspect of my image bearing that you choose to ignore. And then on a more horizontal level, a more human level, uh, the fact that, that I am in this body as a black man in the United States has shaped my experience and my history in all kinds of ways. And for you to say you're colorblind is to deliberately ignore a big aspect of what makes me who I am in the sense of mm -hmm. the way I experience life in this country is vastly different because I'm considered black. And the reality is Imani Perry wrote the, a, a fantastic article uh, recently, she's a she's an author and a, a historian, and she said, um, basically, ra racism is a problem. My blackness is not a problem. Mm. And so, what she's trying to say there is that racism has made my blackness or my skin color the problem, but in reality, being black is something that is you can celebrate something that has a richness to it mm -hmm. and a history to it. And to be colorblind, I, you, you said it well, you know, you understand the sentiment behind it, but it's also to pretend as if everyone is starting from the same place in society. When in reality, we know that black people and other people of color have many disadvantages and you treating me as if I'm not black and as if I have all the same sort of experiences, advantages, privileges that a white person does actually perpetuates the problem because you're not naming the problem, right? You got to name the mm -hmm. issue of racism yeah. and anti-black racism in order to do something about it. Yeah, I think that's helpful, man. And so, so we, we've been talking about racism more broadly, but you and The Color of Compromise, I mean, you show how this has shown up specifically within Christianity and within Christian church history. And so one of the things you wrote in your book, and I'm just going to quote it directly here. I'm sure it's weird having people read to you what you wrote. But here's what you said. You said the most egregious acts of racism, like a church bombing, occur within a context of compromise. And that kind of gets to the title of your book. He said the failure of many Christians in the South and across the nation to decisively oppose the racism in their families, communities, and even in their own churches provided fertile soil for the seeds of hatred to grow. And then you said this, you said the refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to imp oppression perpetuates oppression. 
And in many ways, that's what your whole book is about. And then the application of, of becoming aware of that reality. So as you've studied church history, what are some examples of indifference to oppression perpetuating oppression? Yeah, so um, there are times when white Christians have shrunk back from an initial position. So in the 1790s, a Baptist denomination put out a statement that said, you could not be a Christian in good standing and be a slaveholder. Well, that went back to the local congregations, and there was such a backlash from it that the denomination officially rescinded that and said, uh, mm. Race and, and well, it said slavery is a civil issue and not a, a, an issue for the church to deal with, which created mm. this artificial separation between the spiritual and the material and would set the pattern. That wasn't the only incident, but it's, a, it's an, a, um, an exemplary incident of how white Christians selectively chose to exclude issues of race and slavery and white supremacy from their conversations about the faith. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. one way. And, and let me just let me just jump in real quick to make sure I'm hearing you say this right and people are not missing this. You're saying as related to the issue of slavery, people essentially said because of backlash, people essentially end up kind of deciding that's not something we should talk about in right. the church. We should just talk about spiritual issues and salvation and 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 you know spiritual disciplines but let's not talk about those political issues right. like slavery is that essentially kind of what we're seeing in in church history precisely okay An another yeah. incident is uh in the early 1800s there was a, a missionary a white missionary named francis lejao he was with the society for the propagation of the gospel and as you might assume, he didn't have much luck converting or much success converting um, Native Americans and, and black people he was talking to because it was it was white people who were enslaving people and who were also saying, hey, believe in the same God and the same religion we do. But when he did get some converts at baptism, he made them recite baptismal vows that said uh, essentially you pledge that you are getting baptized strictly for the good of your own soul and not out of any aim or desire for your emancipation. And so wow. it was it was just so stark and startling to me because this is baptism, which is supposed to be your sort of formal sacramental entrance into the household of faith. And from the mm. jump, he is mm. making it, he is making the statement that. God can have your soul, but we own your body. And you mm. will be forever mm. considered second-class citizens in the household of God, in the religion that we practice. Um, so, mm. so those are older examples, but you can look at uh, sort of 20th century examples too. And, and the, um, the deafening silence of many white Christians during the Jim Crow era when lynchings were happening frequently almost on a weekly basis and to this day in 2020 we don't have an anti-lynching law on the books and when these laws were first being proposed during the jim crow era it was oftentimes white people in general and white christians specifically that were opposing it and they said we need lynching to keep black people in their place essentially we need lynching mm -hmm. to protect mm -hmm. our our fragile white women uh, all those kinds of things. You move on forward to um, the civil rights movement. I think it's just so interesting. There's a story in there about um, the 1965 Watts uprising and Billy Graham goes there, who's sort of the face of uh, white evangelicalism in the 20th century. He goes there, he's in a bulletproof vest, he's in a helicopter, he flies over the city and he comes back saying, we need more law and order. By contrast, mm. Uh, Martin Luther King goes and he's on the streets and he's talking to people. He's walking around and interacting. And he comes away saying a, a riot is the language of the unheard. And if we really want to do something mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. what we see in Watts right now, we need to do something about the systemic and institutional inequalities along racial lines. And you can keep going. The rise of the religious right, I think, is a really interesting story that most people don't know. Uh, Randall Balmer is a historian who who really helped bring to light the fact that the, coal the, the coalescing 
of white Christians politically around the modern Republican Party happened in the 1970s. Now, most people think that happened because uh, Christians were mobilizing against abortion and uh, were, were trying to enact a so-called pro-life agenda. But what Balmer contends is that the religious right really started to coalesce around integration of schools and particularly mm-hmm. Bob Jones University, which had a policy of segregation and they were recalcitrant on it even after Brown v. Board. This is the 1970s and they wouldn't budge until the IRS came in and said, hey, unless you follow the law, which is to have an integrated school, you're not going to have a tax exempt status. And that's what brought Mm. out Christians out of the woodwork because they thought of all their white segregationist Christian schools. They thought Mm -hmm. of all of their, Mm -hmm. you know, churches and everything and losing tax exempt status and when money was at stake. And and then they started to politically mobilize. And then only a few years later did abortion become one of the central issues around that movement. So throughout history, unfortunately, you see white Christians more often compromising with and demonstrating complicity with racism than courageously confronting it. And I think that history, man, is so helpful and important. I think this is why you wrote the book, not just to educate and inform people about the past, but to say this is something that, and I'm sure I did not make this up, uh, but uh, something that I say a lot is history doesn't repeat itself. We repeat history and we repeat history so often. not always, but often because we're unaware of it. And so as we look at these patterns, like if you're listening to this, some of these patterns become thematic, like they become themes. Let's not talk about these issues that affect this particular group of people in the church. We'll just stick to the spiritual issues. That is, that's language that's been used all throughout, you know, history, um, even as even as you walk through Jamar, some of the history of of Christian schools and uh, and and segregation and integration, like even our our Christian schools and those institutions, right, that were created, and this is true right here in the D.C. metro area. Several schools where I know the history is because as they moved, you know, out of the cities, it was it was a way, right, of them being able to kind of protect. Uh, their kind of school environment from the uh, the integration kind of being imposed or from people moving into their neighborhood. So race has affected so many of the dynamics and institutions that we that we interact with. And I just think it's important for us to be aware of it so that we can resist it. Um, and I and I so appreciate the work that you've done. And I would encourage anybody uh, to pick up this book, The Color of Compromise, because this is just not even scratching the surface. There's so much more depth and breadth about history in that book. I want to I want to throw a couple questions at you, Jamar, before we before we get out of here. And then I got to end on this one last question. Uh, but we got a ton of questions from people um, in anticipation of this interview. And so one of the questions that we got, and, and some people, I don't even, I think you mentioned that you did, uh, teach, teach for America. Um, and so you have been a teacher in the public schools and we got some questions from teachers and Bree asked, what are practical ways white elementary teachers of students of all colors can help end systemic racism and show solidarity. Somebody else asked Jill, who's also a teacher, asked, what are some everyday things I can do to make sure that anti-racism is a part of, is, is a standard in my classroom? So just talking to teachers, what are some things teachers can do uh, to kind of help their students understand these issues? I'm just going to go rapid fire so we can get to as many questions as possible. Um, for mm-hmm. teachers and educators, one concrete action, no cops in schools. You don't need police officers mm-hmm. in schools. There's a whole lot more I can say about that. But in this present moment, it should be clear. The disadvantages, I think, outweigh the advantages. Re- use those funds, use those resources to have mental health counselors in every school and and not sh- just shared mental health counselors who are doing multiple schools, but people who are housed within a particular 
school full time. Another thing is educate yourself. So um, I was not just a teacher. I was also a principal of a middle school. And we would often get mm-hmm. new teachers who were not from the South, who were white, uh, and sometimes who were, who were people of color, too. They didn't know much about race either. Uh, they considered themselves mm-hmm. liberal or progressive, so they would talk about it, but they really weren't informed, especially on history. So equipping yourself through building your awareness is a, is a great first step. So keep reading the books, keep watching the documentaries, keep listening to podcasts like this so you can have a nuanced conversation because questions are going to come up. The other thing is that, yeah. you know, it's 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 always salient with younger kids, but I think these principles apply even to to older folks is making it concrete. And so... Um, I think one great advantage of of me living in the deep south is that history is very tangible. And so I can take mm-hmm. a class or a group of people to to uh, Jackson, Mississippi and Medgar Evers home where he was shot and killed. I can even take them to um, uh, the courthouse where the trial for Emmett Till's lynching was held. I can take them to the University mm-hmm. of Mississippi uh, where there's a statue of James Meredith who integrated the school. I can take them up to Memphis where um, at the Lorraine Motel where MLK was assassinated. But it, it, wherever you are though, there's racial history and there's sites of racial history. So field trips and concrete, tangible experiences, not not just explanations are really helpful. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, there's all kinds of books now about diversity and about race mm-hmm. and even about racial history that are um, geared toward students of different ages and bringing that in, not just as sort of a bonus or an add on, but as an essential part of the curriculum. And I think that's the turn we need to make in our education is saying that this racial history is not just an elective, it's required it's required course. That's good. If people, so several people asked, all right, if I want to grow in just my awareness and just learning more about these issues, are there any particular books? And you've mentioned some in the course of this episode. We'll put them in the notes here. But are there any other books that you would recommend as a starting point for just learning more uh, history about race and racism. So that's always tough because historians are are very specific. And so what I would start with is what kind of history do you want to learn about? Even saying race is very general. Mm-hmm. Do you want to learn about mm-hmm. race in relation to something else like real estate? I would recommend uh, mm-hmm. the book um, When Affirmative Action Was White, When Affirmative Action Was mm-hmm. White by Ira Katz Nelson. Uh, Do you want to learn about race in relation to gender? I would recommend a book by Danielle McGuire, I think, um, called At the Dark End of the Street. Very difficult book about about, uh, rape and and the gendered ways um, that racial violence is enacted. So be forewarned. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to learn about a specific location? So I had mentioned... um, you know, uh, Local People, which is about Mississippi, but there's also uh, another book called I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles Payne. I would recommend another book by Charles Marsh called God's Long Summer. Um, if you don't want a book length treatment, I would go to the website Black Perspectives. Black Perspectives, it's put on by the African American Intellectual Historical Society, AAIHS, headed up by Keisha Blaine, who's got a lot of popular articles in the news. And so you can just Google Keisha, you can just Google Keisha Blaine, and her articles are very helpful. Uh, historical podcasts, law, um, are, are very popular now. Uh, John Fia has one, F-E-A. And then uh, there's the Past Present podcast hosted by a group of historians. There's a lot of multimedia ways you can access history, including, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but um, I have a video teaching series based on the color of compromise that is now available mm-hmm. on Amazon Prime included with your subscription. So if you've got an Amazon Prime subscription, these are 12 videos, about 20 minutes each, based on the content of The Color of Compromise. You need not have read the book, but it's also a good companion with the book. So those are some resources. That's helpful, man. That's helpful, dude. Well, um, here's the last question for you. I mean, the episode, I know we've been talking about just some heavy stuff, but it's, it's heavy times. And a lot of people have been asking for help uh, in growing in their awareness of these issues. And you've been such a helpful guide when it comes to race and racism and history. Um, and so uh, that is, uh, man, it's, it's, a, it's a joy, uh, honestly, man, to be able to learn from you. The, the uh, podcast is called That Sounds Fun. 
So gotta land on this question, man. What what do you do for fun, bro? I know you're a historian. I know you read a lot of books. I know you gotta do some stuff for fun. So what do you do for fun? Why? Man? Okay. Um <laughs> it's it's really hard. Uh what do I do for fun? Okay. So this, I don't, I don't, even, I hesitate to say it because it's a, it might be a fad in my life. So you might check back a month from now and it's like, Jamar, whatever happened with that? I'm like, yeah, I don't do no more. <laughs> so, but lately I've been, I've been running as a way, not just of mm. exercising, but of de-stressing. And if you know how, how God set up my body. I am not a runner mm. <laughs> at all. Listen, I know how God set up my body and, and I am not uh, a runner. So I look, get it. H- however, however slow you think you are, I got you beat. That's the, I, I promise <laughs> you. But there's something about, because right now as we're recording it, it's summertime, but summertime in the Delta is different altogether. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's yeah. 80 plus degrees by 9 a.m. So So I got to be careful when I get out, but it's something about being outside about, you know, vigorous exercise that especially in this really stressful moment of, of protests and uprisings, when I almost feel it physically, the weight of the emotional and intellectual pressure of this, of this time, uh, that, that vigorous activity leaves me feeling, you know, empty in a good way. It's, it's cathartic. Um, and like I said, I don't know how long it's going to last. I've never run this much in my entire life. But <laughs> for now, it, it, we got to pay attention to mind, body, spirit. So if if we're not taking care of our health, uh, as as my friend Akemeni Uwan says, white supremacy is not going to kill me. I ain't, I, ain't, I ain't about to get mm. high blood pressure or diabetes or any of these chronic health issues because I'm stressing about white supremacy. So I want to do my best to take care of this body that God has given me as well as um my mind and my emotions and my spirit along with it. So that's that's what I hear you, man. I'm gonna take your word for it, man. Because I don't plan on running no time. Man, soon, I don't bro. blame you. <laughs> I, but may the Lord bless you and keep you as you uh as you run in these streets, man. Hey, where can people find you? Yeah. If they want to learn more about you, if they want to follow your work and your ministry, your writing, where can they find for you? Sure. Online? If you want to do something about racial justice, visit thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co, trying to raise a million dollars a year for black Christian leaders. Also, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamar Tisby, J-E-M-A-R-T-I-S-B-Y. And I have a Facebook page as well as a podcast. And the podcast is called Footnotes, uh, which I do solo on current events. And the other podcast I have is Pass the Mic, which I co-host with Tyler Burns. Yeah, man. Y'all go follow Jamar. Jamar, thanks so much, man, for taking the time to be on That Sounds Fun. And uh, God bless you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, friends, aren't they awesome? Thank you to Mike for hosting that conversation. And thanks so much to Jamar Tisby for bringing his wisdom and thoughts. I'm really, really grateful. Make sure you grab a copy of his book, The Color of Compromise. And just like we did when Mike was on the show, this week, anytime we use a link to Amazon, it will be an affiliate link, which means it doesn't change your price at all as the consumer. It just means that when you click the link, Mike will get a little portion of Amazon's commission. And so anything you buy this week through one of our links will go straight to Mike. Make sure you give Mike and Jamar a follow on Instagram, Twitter, all the places. Tell them thanks for being on the show. Tell Mike thanks for hosting this week. And we are back tomorrow with a really interesting conversation. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we asked in our AFD Week in Review newsletter, which if you didn't know about that, you can subscribe in the show notes below. But uh, we asked for questions for Mike. And we got a ton of questions for him. So Mike and a handful of his African-American friends and his wife, Ashley, all sat down with your questions from the Q&A and answered them. And that show will be a special drop-in show tomorrow. So make sure you're subscribed here so you don't miss that show tomorrow. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. And back from vacation, it's Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. And I think that's it for us today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you. And we will see you back here tomorrow. 